CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to Coindesk TV. You are watching The Hash. It is a Friday. Happy Friday to you all. We wish you well. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jensen Assey and Adam Levine. We're going to get you caught up on today's news, crypto, and beyond. Jen, start us off. What do you got? Well, it's not a happy Friday for Kraken. So the SEC is warning platforms to take note of Kraken's move to halt its staking service after paying a $30 million fine to the SEC, we must note that they did not admit or deny any allegations. On CNBC's Squawk Box, Gensler said companies like Kraken can offer investment contracts, but have to have full, fair, and truthful disclosures. He went on to say that they were not a company abiding with basic law. Adam, I'm going to kick this one right off to you. After Brian Armstrong's tweet, I didn't expect to see an action come down so quickly. It seems like Coinbase CEO Armstrong probably had this information in his back pocket. What do you make of this? Yeah, less a rumor and more front running the announcement that he saw coming. So I think that there's a couple of differences from the story that we were talking about yesterday that are worth noting. First off, this is not actually an action against staking itself. This is an action against companies that are against a company that had a staking program that allowed you to basically allow them to stake on your behalf. There's still a bunch of question marks on my side, whether or not that's really a distinction that's particularly meaningful in this circumstance, but it is worth noting. So there doesn't appear to be any sort of concern around uh, the actual activity if you're doing it yourself or potentially using, you know, like a decentralized service to do it. But these big companies, it looks like are in fact going to get whammied by this type of stuff. Um, secondly, the move here is, is an odd one from my perspective. Uh, effectively, what, what they're saying is that, the, is that the Kraken Exchange was offering this as an unregistered security because effectively it's something that delivers yield. But as I discussed yesterday, the way that yield is delivered here isn't exactly the same. The counterparty risk that you bear from a lend product versus a staking product is very different because in a staking situation, you're effectively locking your tokens up into a protocol rather than lending them to someone who then has to pay you back. So the, there's sig some significant differences there too. But the thing that I've really been uh, puzzling about today, and I'm not sure if this is true, I'm trying to confirm it, 
um, is basically that this looks like a, a pretty a pretty low blow gotcha to me. Effectively, in order to even have applied for registration of this program, my understanding is that Kraken would have had to have been a registered entity under the SEC. To the extent that they're a registered entity under the SEC, rather than the state money transmitter licenses uh, that they have to do their business right now, that would mean that they would only be allowed to, to allow their users to trade in tokens uh, or securities that are also registered with the SEC or that are found to be exempt. Crypto is neither of those things. So to the extent that they were to even try to comply with this, effectively, they would be doing so, again, to my understanding, and this may be incorrect, uh, they would be doing so by throwing away their existing business because to the extent that they were able to get approved for this or even to apply for being approved uh, for approval here, they would have to stop trading tokens, which are not registered as securities. Uh, so I think, again, like the whole thing is just, it's another example of rather than doing this the right way, making rules and having those rules be something that goes through a process that actually involves people who understand what's going on. They just did it as a way to grab more power and I think it's going to work very effectively for that. So I think, again, it's an unfortunate uh, situation, not too surprising, and probably not the last of this trend that we'll see. Uh, Jen, I believe I saw your hand. Yeah, I'm going to let Zach jump in, but I just want to corner in on that piece you brought up about the lend, yield, or earn programs. Uh, Gensler was asked about this on that CNBC interview that I mentioned in the intro, and he said, you know, it's, it's all about labels. Whether a program is called land, yield, or earn didn't matter as much as the underlying economics. Um, and I just wonder if they are actually looking at the underlying economics and being as thoughtful about this as that statement would claim. But Zach, I'll throw it off to you. I have so much to say, to say on this, but I want to get you in. I mean, I kind of see the logic of the SEC filing. If you look at it, you say, hey, here's a very opaque product that pools a bunch of funds and the rewards are divvied out at the discretion of Kraken without much disclosure. And I think that is probably a bad way to operate that product, especially if you're advertising it as an investment vehicle. So the fact that the particulars are, are suggested in a way uh, that I think the SEC does sort of understand the difference between me using my self-custodial hot wallet and going to a staking provider and delegating my stake to secure the proof of stake network of my choice they sort of understand how that would work at the individual level and why that's very different than what's happening in this pool product offered by a centralized finance intermediary. So I think like sort of the overreach and claim of what Brian Armstrong was saying, I think is quite different from what the news and what is actually in the filing itself uh, ultimately ended up being. So I think in a weird way, this is actually sort of bolsters the case for further decentralization, right? For further getting away from these intermediaries who are making these products that, hey, they often don't have especially clear and transparent guidelines around how these rewards are issued to individual members of this greater pool. So, hey, if this is ultimately driving people toward self-custodial staking sites, then maybe that's a good thing in the long run. And um, yeah, I could see some of the logic in the filing itself. But anyway, Adam, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, I think, I think that in theory, your statement makes a lot of sense to me. I think in practice, what we're going to see is that people will just stop using these types of products because there isn't an easy way to do it. And again, if you were to compare this to you know, owning ETFs, owning different types of stocks, et cetera, all of these are intermediated products, right? All of these are products that have a company that is effectively doing a bunch of stuff on your behalf. It's also worth noting that Kraken is just not, it's just closing the, the system, right? They're just closing this product 
And they're effectively accepting that they will never be able to create another one of these again, registered or not. If this was just a disclosure issue, then why wouldn't they just have done the disclosures? I have to feel like my, my sense is that there's something here that goes beyond just, hey, there's more transparency that needs to be, you know, that needs to be present in this program in order for it to be compliant. There are other reasons uh, likely why, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing this come down the way that it is. I'm unhappy with this move, but it seems consistent with kind of what we've been seeing. Uh, Jen? Yeah, to Zach's point, I think that Brian Armstrong's tweets showed frustration. And I said that on the show yesterday. You know, as part of this, Gensler said, Kraken knew how to register. Others know how to register. It's just a form on our website. And if they want to offer staking, we're neutral, just come in and register. You know, Coinbase has heard that before and the SEC turned around and sued them for one of their products. And so it feels like maybe his statements came from uh, a reactionary state of being because he's tried to work with the SEC before and has been burnt in a similar way. I want to talk about Hester Peirce's comments on this, though. So she said not everyone at the SEC agreed with this move. We have known about crypto staking programs for a long time. I am going to play the Canadian card here. And I would like one of you to just explain to me the inner workings of the SEC. Because often we see SEC commissioner, she's an acting commissioner, Hester Peirce, come out completely against what Gary Gensler is saying and saying, you know, I've tried to work on this, but I'm kind of getting nowhere. It feels very odd for me to see, to see these two at odds so publicly. So maybe one of you can explain to me why this continues to happen. Why is no one listening to Hester? Nobody can read the mind of any of these people. Ultimately, what it looks a lot to me like is Kabuki theater. Uh, effectively, this is, you know, Hester is, uh, like, I agree with most of the points that she makes. I think that she's uh, very articulate about this and articulates the points well and articulates the problems with the way, uh, with what the SEC is doing um, and the way that they've been going about it, which really is a, which is a, don't make any new rules, don't actually issue guidance, don't have a process in which something is created, uh, you know, that actually makes sense, but instead just take enforcement actions that then try to set a precedent, but in practice don't because the details usually make it such that they can't. And that also makes it difficult for legal companies to then go in and to operate in these areas because there's so much uncertainty. You don't know if what you're doing is later going to be something that gets you in trouble. So, I mean, we see this in the Federal Reserve too. We see this in a lot of kind of the more public facing, you know, regulators and agencies out there. You'll often have dissenting voices that will articulate the position uh, of the people who are frankly going to lose the argument. (laughs) Uh, and that's kind of what it's always seemed like here. She's saying the right things, but she has no power to actually do it. And the balance uh, of who does have power there is unlikely to change, again, because the reasons why the power balance is the way it is, you know, uh, r- remain. So <laughs> not the most, mar- most articulate answer there, but, but I think that that's what's going on. Zach, any thoughts? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, I think like the agency is set up so that there is a diversity of voices who can, you know, make it known when they dissent from the actions of the chair. And I think that's a nice feature of American government. But (laughs) does it mean that one commissioner is going to be heard and the others are not? Sometimes that does mean that. I don't know. How do they do it up there? Is there like a Gary Gensler of Canada? Yeah, you don't often hear up here this like public, you don't hear people who are in acting office like so publicly against each other in this way. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just feels, it feels different. I feel bad for Hester. And my last point on this is these office hours with Gary Gensler videos 
need to stop. They're so cringe. I can't even watch them anymore. That's high quality I content. Have to the, stop what are you talking them? about? Proof of stake, proof of stake. There's memes. It's probably no one yeah, listens to Hester because like, she doesn't let's, do let's the just memes. Get some look at this good legal frameworks. Look at let's this. Let's just great, get some that. great legal frameworks and look we can pause that. on the videos. Proof of stake. Wow. Anyway, that's a big picture of a stake. You often see that from Bitcoin people, actually. Proof of stake. Those meat-eating Bitcoiners. Anyway, I'm taking the next story, I think, and it is about PayPal, which in a new report issued, I guess, yesterday, says that it holds $604 million of, of customer crypto, most of it between ETH and Bitcoin, a little other stuff mixed in there as well. This comes with some additional reporting requirements that were set forth by a recent uh, policy update. And now we get to see uh, the extent to which PayPal users are getting in on this crypto stuff. So interesting number to see. This is as of the end of last year. We all know that the end of last year was quite rough for the crypto markets. And it'd be interesting to see where that number ends up this year. But I'm going to toss it to Adam on PayPal's new crypto numbers. Yeah. I mean, I think that we continue to see that PayPal, you know, has had a lot of success by providing a very easy to use service. Uh, again, like one of the interesting parts about their service is that it connects to their merchant network in a way that's pretty unique in the space. Uh, PayPal has a lot of merchants that have integrated it. And typically when you're looking at, you know, like, hey, I want to spend some crypto, then that's something that actually is quite difficult because not a lot of folks who are out there take it. So there is, I think, a decent argument for why people are holding their crypto with PayPal. Uh, as with all of this other stuff that we've been talking about, again, giving your tokens to anybody carries counterparty risk with it. So I think that's an interesting kind of parallel against that. It's not too much. I think, again, you know, like I was expecting a number of probably closer to a billion dollars, but I suppose with valuations where they are, you know, like, you know, in two years or so, that same amount of crypto winds up being a lot more money. But yeah, not too much to say on this one. Interesting story a little bit, but uh, not unexpected at all. Jen? Yeah, I, I thought this was interesting. I thought about Canada. I'm going to bring it back to Canada again. So for example, uh, if you have a Coinbase account in Canada, you can only withdraw to a PayPal account. And so I think maybe some partnerships like that get people onto PayPal and interacting with their crypto product. What I think will be interesting is to see what happens with PayPal and crypto as we move forward. So PayPal CEO Dan Schulman is retiring in 2023. They just late announced that they were going to lay off 2,000 people. I feel like they've been a little bit slow to get into the crypto game and definitely not a bad thing, but they only recently allowed customers to take crypto off of the platform. And so I just wonder, given the state of the industry, given the macroeconomic state and the uh, business changes that are coming up, if they will continue down this crypto path or if we might see them pause until the next bull cycle. Zach, what do you think? I think PayPal was a market leader on this one, right? They sort of kickstarted that initial like crypto bull run where it was like, oh, no, wow, the institutions really are here. Like we've kind of forget how big a deal it was that PayPal added this service, even in its first highly custodial form. They subsequently acquired a crypto custody firm, I believe it was called Curve, no E. And they've made transferring these funds off of customer accounts into external wallets possible. So it is a bit of this journey that I think you know, we talk about it a lot, right? This journey that these fintech companies go on. And, uh, you know, they start with something that's highly comfortable to them and their users. And they start to add a bit more of that real crypto functionality down the road. I think one day, maybe there's a way that DeFi works with your PayPal account. And that'd be super cool. Are we there yet? Absolutely not. But it, I, I think the history does suggest that maybe there is some 
march toward decentralization within the contours of these business empires that does give users that functionality should they choose to use it. And I think probably they have the tech to support it with the curve uh, acquisition from whenever that was. So anyway, I'd be curious to see again what the next thing PayPal does with crypto. I think to their credit, they were a bit early relative to some of the other fintech players that jumped in. I guess they could always be doing more in Jen's eyes, at least. Huh, Jen? You know, 2020, I forgot we're in 2023. So yeah, I was like, 2020 is yesterday. I feel like that's, what about 2017? Where were they? (laughs) That's real, real talk. Good stuff. (laughs) All right, let's change gears. We're going to toss it to the NFT beat and we're going to toss it to Adam on this one, actually. But Adam... Royalties tied to a popular song released by music artist Rihanna were offered in tokenized form yesterday through a Web3 music startup called Another Block. Each token represents reportedly 0.0033% of the streaming revenue for the song, which has already seen more than a billion plays on streaming services and has gone platinum. The token, of which there are 300, also reportedly sold out in minutes. This is a particularly interesting story to me because this sort of tokens as fractionalized revenue stream use case has actually been one of the most attractive reasons for rights holders and artists to create a token that goes beyond just being a digital collectible. But as usual, there's a hitch. At least in the US, where the securities regulator is on the hunt for ever more power, the act of using a token in this fashion has been viewed as one of the more clear-cut examples of when an NFT is pretty obviously an investment. I don't know all the details on how that's being handled in this situation, but it's just worth noting. Why don't we go to you, Zach, for kind of first thoughts on this one? Wow, Zach just (laughs) just, rugged me on this one. I definitely rugged you. Sorry about that. Royalties are different, dog. (laughs) Royalties are different. There is different statutes around how loyalties can be divvied up and shared. So the space is tightly prescribed by existing legal stricture. And so therefore, you've seen like, Web3 royalties emerge as the thing rather than sort of like revenue sharing more broadly. So you have like Royal, uh, you have a bunch of other ones. This is in that vein. Just wanted to offer that and then toss it back to Jen. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I think there are a lot of projects that are trying to do this in the uh, entertainment and music space, but there are also some that are trying to do it in the sports space. I did some work for a project that is allowing athletes to uh, use NFTs to fractionalize their season's winnings so that they can get a bulk amount of money to do whatever they need to do, whether they need to fund their training or whatever. And so I think this is really interesting. I think we're going to see more projects like this in the next bull cycle. The most interesting part of the story to me was that collectors get a real-world legal contract specifying the terms of the streaming royalties and guaranteeing real-world ownership for the NFT holder. I haven't seen this in any of the other projects. And I think that real world contract is a really important part of, of the piece that's been missing. And so it will be interesting to see how the like digital world, the NFT world, and the uh, real world legal contract thing kind of plays out. But I think that that's the missing piece. And I think that that might make this you know, a front runner when we talk about some of the other projects. Another interesting part of this for me is that Rihanna's actually not involved at all. So this is one of the producers on the song. There are a bunch of other people who are involved in making the song and get royalties from this. And he's been able to, you know, create a community around the piece that he owns. And I think it's really cool for fans. You know, I think it's a different way to interact with the song. They can say they have, you know, some ownership in the song. It may incentivize them to play the song more often. Uh, getting more money back to that producers. I think there's a couple of things that are interesting here, uh, kind of beyond what we've talked about so far. Uh, first off, the tokens themselves cost like 200 bucks or something like that. So 
if you're looking at this as a way to to own a thing and to feel like you're part of something that's culturally important to you, that feels like that's a pretty accessible price point for it. And again, when you're talking about, you know, like, hey, here's NFTs typically, and then here's what this is, where there's actually a revenue stream attached to it, then again, like, it's just obvious that were this not controversial from a legal and regulatory perspective, this is how a lot of this stuff would already be going. It just makes so much sense. I think to your point, Jen, you know, like, People feeling like they have a stake in the thing, like that's a thing that people talk about. They, you know, again, so like from a like a just kind of word of mouth promotion thing. Not that this song particularly needs it. That's also something that seems quite compelling here. Um, as far as the the like the security status of these types of things are concerned, typically what it is is it's not necessarily the royalty stream, although that can be uh, one of the problematic elements. It's actually the fractionalization that winds up being the problem. Because just like with the the SEC action we were talking about earlier in the show. Uh, as it relates to staking services, it's not necessarily staking that's problematic. It's the company that's managing and aggregating the staking and making it easy. And it's much the same here with royalties. It's that you, as a person who owns the token, typically, not necessarily in this case, again, I don't know a ton of details about this one, but typically you would be relying on the company that is administering those royalty flows to actually make sure that you get paid. It's not like this is a smart contract that's going to do it automatically with no hands involved. There will be hands involved. And I mean, also to the extent that there are individual contracts being signed on a per user basis, uh, who actually holds this thing. Well, again, that means that there's execution risk. There's some, uh, again, like there's just a, a bunch of moving parts in the thing that make it so that it winds up being a more clear cut case really for NFTs to be considered securities really than most other things that we typically see. So um, I don't know, like I said, I really like this use case. It's one where I, I spent a, a couple of years, maybe three, four years talking with a lot of artists and a lot of rights holders. And this was the thing that they always wanted to do. And you had to tell them, yeah, I know you want to do that and people want to buy that, but you can't do that because it'll have these, these legal repercussions that'll come for you. So it's nice to see that people are either breaking through those, you know, by not accepting U.S. purchasers or, or some other way. But uh, again, good to see these types of use cases coming up. And I hope that we see more of them. I think Rihanna coming up with the Super Bowl halftime show. The timing is right to get out these NFTs, these royalty things. And also, like, I know we talked about this the other day. The Super Bowl allegedly banned crypto ads or all the crypto ads fell through. That, that's not even true. Like, there's going to be an NFT ad, like a free <laughs> NFT drop during the Super Bowl. Like, that's one of the ads. I thought that was just like a funny note in addition to the Rihanna story. But Jen, I'll give it to you. What are your thoughts? I was going to say, imagine having this NFT. So the song is called Bad Word, Better Have My Money, right? And you have the NFT. <laughs> so now every time you play it, you get the money. What a great, like someone should make that ad. I want this producer to go out and make a video of someone listening to this and just lip syncing that they better have their money. But Zach, to your point on that NFT ad, I think if there was any crypto company that would could show up during the Super Bowl without a bad feeling, it would be an NFT company. I just think it's kind of like a bad look. I don't think crypto companies should be spending money right now. But if you're giving away NFTs, I, I don't know. I feel like that's the like, it's it's kind of okay. You seem like you disagree, Zach. <laughs> I think the cringe, I think there's gonna be much backlash. I think the it's cringe factor is is high for, for free for free tokens uh, being given out on the on the on the TV. Um, but what do people get? Hey, maybe not. What, what's the story? Do we know? What do people get with this free NFT? Uh, uh, we don't know. Okay. We don't know. I changed my, we'll I changed. See. Cringeworthy. <laughs> I'm with you now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I Nailed changed. it. 
All right, all right. That's it for the show today. Happy Friday, everybody. Yeah, Super Bowl Sunday. You guys got any plans? Adam, Jen, do anything fun? Huh? I hear sports no. are popular. It's my birthday. Huh? So oh, happy birthday. That's what I'm celebrating. Thank you. <laughs> happy, happy birthday to you. Fantastic. Well, we wish you a happy birthday. We sign off. I'm Zach. That's Adam. That's it for the show this week. We'll see you next week. You have a great day. Bye now. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 